Hello and welcome to Simulcast episode 5. Today we're going to be discussing in situ simulation and our guest is Andrew Petrosniak. Andrew is an emergency physician and trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Petro has built a strong grounding in the sim lab but is a vocal advocate for point of care or in situ simulation. Petro is the taller, better looking and all round more refined co-lead of the trust study, an in situ simulation based study examining design ergonomics, human factors and latent safety threats in trauma care. Petro and his colleagues also have recently published an article on in situ sim in Emergency Medicine Australasia. We'll link that and some other papers in the show notes. So welcome Petro and hello Victoria. Vic, how have you been? Yeah, I've been good, Jesse, and uh, doing a lot of simulation both at the hospital and with the students as the year comes to an end. And what's more, just to sort of give a little highlight, I'm off to the Asia Pacific meeting on simulation and healthcare next week. So I'm going to flag a couple of short pause and discuss episodes based on some interviews there. So yep, enjoying too much sim is never enough. Sounds great. And uh, that was a bit remiss of me. I should actually refer to you as Professor Brazel now, shouldn't I? Yeah, that would be the most appropriate thing, Jesse. And uh, I'm not sure if I can talk to you if you don't do that. Congratulations. Welcome, Petro, and thanks for coming along. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. We're going to launch off, as always, by um, setting up a bit of a case that's going to frame the rest of our conversation. So I'll hand over to Vic to talk us through the case. Setting the scene, we're going to imagine that... uh, We're already doing some simulation. We're running some fortnightly scenarios uh, in the sim centre and the residents come over for the training and uh, from time to time you get a couple of nurses to come to. You're pretty happy with your scenarios. They seem like they're good, solid, critical care type stuff. The residents like them. But you kind of have this feeling that when they actually go back to the shop floor and they're at the coal face, they sort of struggle to actually apply it. You see them do good stuff in the sim but they come back and they don't know where the equipment is, they can't really lead the multidisciplinary team, and they just seem much slower to really get onto those critical actions. So you've heard a little bit about this in situ sim stuff and you approach the department director and the nurse manager and you say, well, maybe we could do some sim actually in the department, in the actual resus bay. And they sort of look a bit sceptical at you. You know, we're really busy. Um, I'm not sure if we could release the staff. I don't think we've got the time. Uh, you know, there's, we need that bay most of the time. We did have some mock codes a few years ago before you came, and that just really seemed disruptive, and I'm not sure if it helped at all. So you go back to your office and you're thinking, hmm, can we actually do this and how am I going to make it happen? Petro, before we sort of get into espousing the benefits um, that moving some of your simulation into a a point of care or workplace context can have, it might be pertinent to just um, get a working explanation of of what in situ simulation is and what are some of the, the major differences from a functional point of view in your experience between in situ and the sim lab? Just so that we are all on the same page, the Definition that I use to kind of define in situ simulation from uh, Patterson, who is sort of, uh, Mary Patterson's one of the leaders in in situ simulation, and and, uh, she defines it as a training technique conducted in the actual patient care environment involving actual healthcare team members. Uh, One of the things that is interesting about that definition is that it kind of emphasizes the whole education and training component which as I'm doing more and more of this, I'm realizing is maybe potentially less important or uh, 
less value uh, in, from the educational aspect and more about some of the systems uh, and some of the ergonomics and the human factors. So it, it does underemphasize a little bit, but I think it's a fairly reasonable idea that we're basically in the patient care environment with our actual team. What it doesn't spell out, and I think that this is important, is that it doesn't say whether the space is going to be used for a patient in that in the time that you might be there, or whether it's a sort of a dedicated area that has just been cordoned off that will never have a patient, but is essentially an exact replica and just happens to be an empty room. So depending on what uh, what your space looks like, that really can change how easy it is to bring an in-situ simulation program to your location. That seems like a great place to start um, in terms of our understanding of it, Petre. But I guess one thing to really draw on that you said there was that potentially that um, hinging on the definition being around education and training does make it a little bit hard to understand the benefits of moving it out of a very controlled environment and protected environment like a simulation lab and into the work environment. So uh, that's a really great starting place. It is also about the purpose of the simulation. And I think as we've spoken about before, perseverating on the modality and its terminology is probably less useful than saying, are we matching that modality well to the objective we want to achieve? And if it really is an objective that, well, it's just so convenient to get people off the floor for 15 minutes of sim and 10 minutes of debrief right next to where they work, then maybe that space is a fine one because this is still about education and training. But if your idea is we need to really test out our resus bay and how well we move to CT rapidly and how well we get to the operating theatre, then clearly you're going to need to be using the actual space. So I don't mind the term in situ. It seems fairly well understood. Uh, point of care sounds pretty cool as well. But I think ultimately I really try and whenever these conversations come up, push the idea of are you clear on what you're trying to achieve and then just choose the modality that goes with it. And I would think that probably should be varied. The point of doing in situ simulation uh, really should be uh, weighted heavily by the, the objectives that underlie it. And it sort of speaks to this idea of functional task alignment, uh, this idea that in, we kind of move away from having the uh, structural fidelity of a situation and really setting up a simulation so that it aligns with the objectives, whether they be learning objectives or whether they be uh, testing objectives uh, of the simulation. And that's pretty crucial for why we're when to use in-situ simulation. That moves us nicely into the space of actually starting to look at some of those functional domains. And yeah, I think you, you guys did a fantastic job of starting to break down some of the core functional domains that... Um, have a growing evidence base from, uh, from in-situ simulation in your EMA paper. Um, so if you're happy to just take us through some of those concepts, that'd be really quite interesting because I think that starts to give us some ways to underpin or to draw that functional task alignment more with why we might consider moving out of the lab and into the workplace and the type of benefit that we could get from that. So I guess when we talk about simulation just in general, it tends to be uh, directed towards educational uh, objectives. It tends to be a training modality. And I think that uh, naturally in situ simulation would also have that uh, 
ability to be a, uh, a training modality. And it, the reason that it might work is that it's got sort of some underlying educational theory, that situated, situated learning theory, uh, this idea that learning is tied to the context of the experience. And what we, uh, when we were uh, kind of reviewing what data exists in the insight you simulation, from our perspective, we decided to break it down into kind of three broad domains, the idea of team performance and training, uh, the idea of systems and processes and how we can use insight you simulation to test those, and then this idea of exploring threats within the patient safety realm. And certainly those are distinct domains, but they have considerable overlap. And as uh, Victoria actually replied to me on Twitter, th these also within each of these domains, she sort of emphasized that there's this concept of being able to use each within those domains that you use in situ simulation from a diagnostic perspective, and then either some type of therapeutic perspective where you can actually inform change. And I think that's a great way of thinking about this. When I think about in situ simulation from a team perspective, I kind of like to think of it as the home field advantage that is so commonly referred in sports. Uh, believe it or not, there are people that get paid to study how and why teams do better at home for good reason, because of the massive amounts of money that go into professional sports. Uh, this only makes sense that you would carve off a little bit of that profit to see how and why you can make your fans happier by your team winning. And what they've looked at, they've looked at a whole sort of range of things, why teams do better when they play at home. You have the crowd that's supporting you. You're familiar because you've trained there. Uh, so you might be able to pick up on the bounces of the ball differently than the other team. Or you get to sleep in your own bed, so you're presumably more well-rested. The conclusion has been that it's a multifactorial reason for success, but across whatever sport you're talking about, home teams always do better than teams that are away. And I think that if we can capitalize on this in a training perspective within medicine, this idea of training within our actual environment where we're going to then perform uh, really offers us an opportunity to do good to our patients. And I think that that's sort of the building block of why we would use insight simulation, at least start the conversation. As I've become a little bit more aware and thought about looking at team performance within insight simulation, I've realized that it's really a tough thing to use to construct a whole curriculum around, and that rather it's simply a piece. And I think I didn't have any disclosures before this, uh, but I should say a disclosure that I have is that I don't dislike center-based or lab-based simulation. I find it actually quite useful. I uh, participate in it regularly. I uh, am involved in education from that perspective. And I think it's really a, an important part of uh, a, learning, uh, a, a learning environment and a curriculum. And that insight use simulation simply augments that when used correctly. But what we've been looking at is we've been understanding that using in-situ simulation really is a tough thing to do on a regular basis for all of the things that we might talk about kind of going forward, the challenges of implementation. And instead, there's probably some opportunities 
when if we use it properly to use it as a needs assessment to inform curriculum so if for instance you run a simulation for your entire team and then you decide that you've identified that there are knowledge gaps within that team when they're uh, performing in their own environment then you can then target subsequent center-based or lab-based simulations or whether it be lectures or how, whatever educational construct you're going to use so you can then use insight you simulation to inform future curriculum you can it certainly has value in the multidisciplinary aspect it is much easier to get people uh, particularly when you're talking about a multidisciplinary team into the workspace than it is to a sim lab and getting everybody uh, across four or five disciplines is nearly impossible uh, especially if your sim labs far far away from where you work uh, and so that's where we're seeing benefit we've kind of modified and moved away from simply using it as an ongoing team performance exercise particularly because it's challenging to implement on a daily or a regular basis but if you can implement it monthly uh, then you have some different opportunities that you can use and and we're using it as a strategy to augment M&M rounds uh, and um, that that's this idea that you can kind of borrow cases, you can borrow themes of cases, it's almost predictable about what's going to go wrong in any type of, uh, within any type of team, whether it be a trauma team for us, we identified that there were some regular themes that things had issues with, so whether it be penetrating trauma, whether it be transferred traumas from um, patients from other uh, small, smaller hospitals, these were regular uh, uh, issues that came up in our M&M rounds. Well, instead of waiting for something to happen to a patient, we could simply build and predict a case that this is probably going to happen. And then we can run these, we can run simulations and actually use the simulation as a form for M&M rounds, uh, where we would then run the simulation, have a structured debrief after, which is so uncommon when we think about a real M&M rounds. People leave often because something may be potentially bad happened and then there's sort of hallway conversations we can actually do structured debriefing and we can look at look at video review instead of relying on these uh, people's memories or notes that are perhaps incomplete and then you can actually conduct an M&M rounds review video discuss it in a way in a couple of weeks later and use it as a strategy to inform change and then replay the same simulation several months down the line, whatever it might be that's relevant to your setting, and use this as an educational strategy to start the conversation within a QI realm. That's, um, it's really interesting because they're really, I guess, maybe grossly oversimplifying it, but the, the move from the focus being on team training and education to it being about um, diagnosis and stuff, it's almost a shift of the learning objective of the scenario from being for the participants to being for both the participants and the um, faculty or the the governing system that's that's running the simulation. So you've, uh, it's something that I've really been interested in and, and have shifted my thinking a lot around Insight U Sim over the last um, couple of years to there being almost two parallel sets of of learning objectives: one for the organizers and conveners of the simulation and one for the participants. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I think that that is something that as 
you do more in situ simulation that that becomes apparent. Uh, there is a reasonable amount of evidence uh, people using regular in situ simulation to augment and to improve team performance. Uh, so certainly I don't mean to underemphasize its utility from an educational perspective, but I think we definitely understand and we're beginning to appreciate its utility to look at other parts that are less educationally focused. Uh, there are uh, interesting outcomes, not particularly causal, but there are some studies that have looked at hospitals that run regular pediatric mock codes. Even though the teams aren't the same for each mock code because it's an ad hoc team, the team just comes together, but they run these weekly. And over a year, they've actually seen improvements in their pediatric cardiac arrest outcomes. So they've had reductions, considerable reductions in mortality, simply by running in situ simulation on a regular basis. Now, we should be cautious that they're uh, only probably associations rather than causality because it's, it's it wasn't designed as a randomized trial. Um, but it's certainly interesting that bringing regular in situ simulation can or is at least associated with improved patient outcomes. And as far as the authors of these studies can uh, determine, it seems to be associated with the team training. Perhaps something they're not understanding is that there's a deeper culture of learning that's kind of being fostered. And I, I don't think the studies were designed to look at that. But it is certainly interesting that we running these regularly may actually be uh, helpful for uh, ultimately patient outcomes, which was what we're all trying to achieve. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I agree. And I think you're referring to Betsy Hunt's study where what they found was the pre-course or pre-training capability of the residents went up over the year, which means that something was happening back in the workplace that meant that the trainees were coming much better than the trainees who came at the beginning of the year. And I think this speaks to potential diffusion effect of doing in situ training, potentially of doing any training at all. But I think um, it is a postulation, as, as Andrew was quick to point out, but I think the idea that there were messages being taken back into the workplace that were easy to translate back into the workplace because they'd been done there. And, and we can probably post that uh, article for folks who are listening. I think the other side to this coin uh, in the shift, and, and believe me, I'm right with you, there are times and places for all kinds of modalities directed at the same outcome. And if you want better trauma care, obviously that's going to involve some sim lab training, some insight you training, some mental rehearsals, some team leader training focused on teamwork, but also some nuts and bolts of where's the equipment and how do we make sure it's optimally there. So it would be strange to think that we had a a single shot antidote to the things that ail us in trauma care because they are multifaceted. Uh, the thing that I would sort of say is sometimes a downside with that is, as you say, it's almost like the participants are confederates in their own simulation when the simulation is focused on the systems. They're really just doing their job and their learning can take a bit of a second uh, place in this. And the place where I see that is in the debrief I get the sense, particularly when we do big simulations that involve multiple interfaces, and for me the value is about looking at the interface between, say, QAS and ED, that's ambulance services for those who don't work in Queensland, and the emergency department or the interface that is emergency department to CT scanner or from there to the operating theatre. 
But what I find afterwards is there are unmet needs often in the teams who want the little sub teams who want to talk about their what they learnt in their individual performance or even their team performance. So we've now moved, and I know you're going to talk about debriefing debriefing strategies, but we've moved a little bit more towards actually allowing some time at the end for the sub teams to have their own discussion to perhaps meet some of those needs now that we've taken this happy shift, I think, but realising that in doing that shift, sometimes we are losing something, of course. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, Victoria, and we actually had a couple residents when uh, we were running, um, as we run the trust study, which is a, we're running a multidisciplinary uh, unannounced trauma resuscitations. They, they basically came to us and asked, what's in it for us? Because essentially what we were looking at was, uh, while we were looking at team performance, the majority of the debrief was structured around latent safety threat identification, very much a shift away from the usual debriefing construct that, we, that we're so familiar with when we were in the uh, simulation center, where we would be focused on how did people perform, what were the uh, non-technical skill uh, performance issues that occurred, what were the medical performance issues. And when we spent time talking about what were the barriers to your how you were able to care for a patient, that's a really big shift. And people were legitimately wondering, if I'm going to take time out of my day, what's in it for me? And, and that's not an easy question to answer, to be honest, uh, because there isn't, wasn't always a direct benefit right to them at that moment. Now, we hoped that we could develop a relevant debriefing and bring forth relevant cases such that there would be learning that would occur. But certainly when you're time constricted, you can't go into the nuances of some of that. And instead, the focus was on making sure that we were identifying latent safety threats within that environment. So what we tried to do was first be upfront about what our issues uh, or what the goal of the simulations were. And then we did try and bring back the learnings that they fed back to us in their debriefing in sort of later rounds in our trauma rounds, M&M rounds, that kind of thing, so that they saw what it was they were contributing and how they were informing change. And it's a different way of thinking about learning, but it's they're actually making a big impact on their own system and their own environment it's just not that something that they're going to be able to write and be able to use for their next uh, residency exam. I think it gets at what Lee Lingard would call collective competence. A lot of our trainees and our senior people still think that if only I get better I will be part of a better team and then we will deliver better care and I think they're leaps whereas I think to develop that collective competence in the workplace uh, people don't necessarily associate that with as high outcomes as them learning more stuff themselves. And I think that's probably um, an expectation or a learning norm that we have to question, certainly in some situations. It seems um, to be fairly familiar, and I know, Petra, you and I have spoken about this previously, is, not, is actually taking account in your planning of a simulation that that task realism for all members of the simulation, particularly when you're doing something that is designed to predominantly have a um, diagnostic component to it, that if if it really becomes about just the team leader, and this is one of the, my my 
personal experiences I've had with a lot of a lot of simulations being very focused on medical training that the nurses um, become almost props to it and you do see a fairly rapid disengagement from from that group um, which can really undermine undermine that so how have you gone about ensuring that kind of realism for all members of the team when uh, particularly in your trust study work because um, I'm assuming that's that's got to be very important if you're looking to control for ver- other variables. That that's something that is a, a legitimate, I guess, concern. Uh, I think we've overcome it, and I think we have been able to, with ample dissemination of what our goals are through emails, through presentations to the entire team, and because I'll be honest, there's a lot of it we don't actually have to do anything about. You simply if you develop a scenario uh, and you put in the effort and the time to make it run, like a, for instance, we're using trauma, so I'll just use that as an example, like a real trauma, you don't have this perception like I feel sometimes occurs in the sim lab where, like you said, the nurses are simply there to help educate the doctors and be there to uh, do whatever is needed. We purposely designed each scenario to have very relevant roles for each of our multidisciplinary participants. So for us, we have, in fact, some of it was maybe more nurse or respiratory therapist emphasized so that we could get their perspectives. And I'll I'll speak a little bit, actually, in one of our scenarios, actually a couple of them, they explore our massive transfusion protocol. And actually, a couple of times during our debrief, the first person to speak was our porter, who's in charge of transporting blood to and from the blood bank uh, during a massive transfusion protocol. They were the first to speak in terms of what were barriers and what, what were issues for them to get to and from the blood bank. So uh, I don't have a sort of a specific concrete answer for how we achieved it. We were upfront with our objectives. We were honest with our participants made sure that the system ran almost identically to real life. And then people just operate the way that you would expect them to. And they feel like you're not trying to deceive them. We didn't put in little tricks or anything like that into the scenarios, especially early on. It was just simply to observe. And really, we spent our debriefings asking them to finally get an opportunity. This was a platform for them to speak and hopefully we would be able to use what they tell us to inform change. That was somewhat of a loaded question actually, uh, obviously tilted towards the fact that doing it in the real work environment um, with actual equipment that people have licensed to use and open, um, unlike a simulation lab potentially can add some of that task task realism for all of the participants so that that's really interesting and really um exactly what i was i was sort of feeling as well you uh, the emphasis on trust and honesty and um and you you've got this uh, quite a, a depth of experience in simulation in your department now um in both medically uh sim lab orientated stuff different studies there's been quite a broad variety of simulation um, one of the things I want to take you back to, I suppose, um, and, and getting you to think back to the early stages of bringing this into the culture of your workplace, 
is um, some of the challenges that we can be confronted with and, um, and some of the mitigation strategies. And I, I will acknowledge you did publish a really nice challenge mitigation um, table that we'd love to include in the associated blog post with your permission. Um, and just, yeah, I guess touch on that. Yeah, absolutely. And Jesse, I mean, you know this uh, as well, or maybe better than I do when we've, uh, when we've done workshops together about this, this idea of change management and how we implement change. I had never really thought about this until I started doing Insight You Sim, where the minute that you start doing it, there's a group of people that will naturally be resistant to it. And I think that's healthy. And I think that's a good thing because whenever you bring change, people naturally will question that. And there's something to be said, just uh, innate, your trustworthiness, uh, your honesty, that kind of thing. But uh, the there is a structure that I think can be used. And certainly, I think it's reasonable to reference Cotter at this point in terms of his eight steps to change implementation. And the first thing is to kind of establish that sense of urgency. Why does this even matter? What is it? And get people talking about that and then get them to sort of develop strategies for the vision. You create the vision and sort of subsequently move through that. We definitely struggled, I think, just as anybody else would with getting this kicked off the ground, getting uh, regular unannounced trauma insight you simulations. There's something to be said about having somebody who is passionate and who is dedicated and willing to put in a fair amount of work. And in this case, this was me. Uh, I certainly am passionate about this whole idea and because I, I really believe that the whole point of this is to, to make a better environment for people to work in. And ultimately, I really think that it leads to better patient outcomes. And that's what we're all here for. So if you approach this with an honesty that I'm not, that you're not trying to do it for any other secondary gains, then that does resonate with people. In particular, we we or uh, some particular strategies that we used. We did use a a top down bottom up engagement. So we we did try and get champions from disciplines within uh, the groups that we're going to be participating, and that's really important uh, to have. And if you're gonna, if you can get those people to even be participants early on, then that shows that this is an okay thing, and that their leadership is in support of this. Uh, we also had support, um, and part of this is luck. Part of it speaks to how good of a salesperson you are, maybe. But we had considerable support from our uh, chief medical officer when we were starting to implement this because he's a big advocate of simulation. He understands this and he was a huge supporter and uh, really pushed this forward from his perspective in terms of funding and just simply lending his support verbally through emails, that kind of thing. So we got a little bit lucky there that we didn't have to do much convincing. But I would say, and then we were talked about this at the beginning, sort of what's the, what are we doing this for? We talked that uh, originally that simulation sort of is designed perhaps primarily from an educational perspective uh, with educational objectives. But I think now as we learn more and more about insight use simulation, it really has a big component of patient safety uh, as, the main, as a primary goal or at least a predominant goal. And if you make early on, you make your scenarios and you make the whole 
program about patient safety, less about education, less about performance evaluation, and give people a platform to talk and then uh, provide them with an opportunity to inform change within their workplace, this is very powerful because in many organizations, even well-functioning ones, the people on the ground have a very difficult time feeding back to those that actually uh, make decisions. And so if you can actually show them that what they've said informs decisions, that's an extremely powerful way to get buy-in. We, uh, we always like to try and reduce things right down to three key take-homes. What were yours for from hearing Andrew's thoughts and experiences? Yeah, well, first of all, I was just sitting there really enjoying a great conversation because I think this is a complicated shift that we're doing in simulation, but I think a worthwhile one and, and overdue. But yeah, you're forcing me into these three take-home messages, Jesse, and I'm happy to offer them up. I think the first one for me was really decide what you're trying to do here. Uh, is it education? Is it patient safety? Is it processes of care? Or what mixture of it is it? And be clear on that in your own head, and then you'll find the how-to probably a little easier. I think the second thing for me is Obviously, don't underestimate the challenge of change management, and Andrew's offered us up a, both a theoretical framework as well as we know in our gut instinct that this is going to take some social capital, it's going to take some passion and some persistence, and it's going to take really keeping an eye on the ball all the way through. And I think the third thing for me was to be very open, transparent, and reflective as you go and really be thinking, are we achieving those things that we set out to do? And have we got some unintended consequences that might be either positive or negative as a consequence of doing this? And I think uh, those three things for me are the take-homes, and I'd like to think I do some of them now, but it's given me a little bit more reinforcement to make sure that that's the case. So thank you very much, Andrew, and thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse.